you're listening to the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable, the official Star Wars Rebels discussion podcast of StarWarsReport.com. Join us each week as we discuss each new episode. We want to hear what you think of this new Star Wars series. Send us an email or an MP3 at RebelsRoundtable at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash RebelsRoundtable, on Twitter at RebelsRound, or on our website, RebelsRoundtable.com. It's a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So strap yourselves in and welcome to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of the original Rebels Roundtable, the official podcast of the Star Wars Report covering all things Rebels animated series. I'm Jonathan, and tonight we're going to be discussing Wings of the Master, the next episode in Season 2. And joining me to discuss, we have Barrett. Hey everybody, it's good to be back. Let's uh, talk a good Rebels podcast. Nathan. Hey everybody, now behave guys or we'll see whether or not you can fly. And joining us for the first time this season, we have Brock. Hey, everybody. Happy to be back at the Rebels Roundtable. So, this episode, Wings of the Master, it kind of takes a departure of what we've been getting for the past several weeks, as in it's not bringing back things or people or events or anything else from Clone Wars. We have a true Rebels episode, as I would describe it. And I'd like to get everybody's initial impressions on this episode. And Brock, as you haven't joined us for a while, why don't you kick us off? What would you think of it? I thought it was a pretty uh, standard episode of a television show. I enjoyed what I was watching, but the plot was a little bit contrived in places to get to the parts they really wanted to show us, which was Hera on the planet and all that jazz. So I found it was certainly enjoyable, but it wasn't the greatest episode I ever watched. I didn't hate it. I just thought, oh, okay. Barrett, how about you? Well, I got what I asked for. You know, I talked about Hera getting some action as she's been light in season two when it comes to Hera. She's kind of been staying at the ship or making plans or whatever Hera's been doing. But we kind of see her in action here and... It's Hera at her best, being a pilot, you know? They touched about it in A New Dawn about her piloting skills, and we've seen some of her piloting skills in season one, but it's nice to have such a focus on Hera and her specialty. So I liked it. It was pretty good. It was definitely a episode that I would enjoy watching over and over again. You know, the action was, was great. So I wonder if Nathan had the same view I had. So enlighten us, Nathan. Did you have the same view as Barrett? You know, I was pretty positive on it. I'm not sure that we really got enough out of Hera here to feel like it was an extremely strong episode for her, but it gave us a little bit more of her background and certainly finally put her center stage. I would say that this actually may be my favorite episode thus far this season, not counting Siege of Lothal, just because it's such a departure. It's not the Clone Wars stuff coming back, as you mentioned, so it's not Clone Wars 2.0. It gave us essentially a new canonical origin for the B-Wing. And in the process of all of this, I didn't find a lot to nitpick, minus, you know, I'm going to see how well you can fly, that Zeb apparently says a couple of times instead of just the once. But when I look back on it, it's not even just the episode that managed to pull things off without a lot of things I felt that I could nitpick. They also had a Rebels Recon to tie into it, and even that did good because it managed to give us some more information regarding the B-Wing that we could talk about later, and it managed to answer a question that came up in our last episode about whether or not Gregor and Wolf went to join the Rebellion with Rex. The answer is no. So you got an episode with its accompanying Rebels Recon, and both of them, to me, were pretty strong, which makes for a really good week for Rebels. I have a quick question before we start talking about the episode in earnest. So I haven't been on the Rebels Roundtable previously this season, and I have been watching the episodes, and I have been noticing that they keep bringing back things from the Clone Wars. Now, I've gone on the record saying I have not watched all of the Clone Wars like you all have, because I just got tired of the repetitiveness. And I'm not going to go into all that now. But the point I'm trying to make is, the last episode, when you had Hondo back, I felt the episode had more of a purpose and had more of a drive and had more of a plot. Here, they're supposed to give us a Hera episode and some backstory on Hera. 
and this uh, beautiful sequence with the B-Wing and all that action sequence is fine, but it all seemed like a pretty light episode overall. It didn't really feel like it was doing anything besides just existing. I guess to give Hera a backstory that, from what I already know of Hera, based on the novels I've read already, wasn't even brought up here. They, I, for example, they didn't even bring up her father. So I was a little confused on the purpose of this episode. I'm hearing you three say it's a great episode but I'm wondering, is it a great episode in writing or in action, or it's just a good episode because it's not bringing back the Clone War stuff that you guys don't want to see? You know, Brock, I wasn't able to give my impression of the episode, so I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to try to answer some of your questions. First of all, I like the episode, but I've gone on record before saying this. I, I'm kind of the Star Wars tech guy. I, I really like the Starfighters. I really like the ships. And the B-Wing has always been kind of a favorite of mine. I think it's an interesting design for a starship. I always liked the purpose of this as, you know, the the heavy assault starfighter. And I think this was a interesting way to introduce this ship. It's changed from what we've gotten in the EU before. And I don't know, I, I think it kind of worked. I also enjoyed some of the character development of Hera. And Brock, like you said, it didn't really go into detail on Hera's backstory as much as you would have gotten if you had read the book, uh, New Dawn. That goes a lot more into it. And Nathan, you'll have to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but what we've gotten before is that since this all matters equally, that they're trying to almost encourage people to read the book if they want to get more information. But at the same time, I think it gave a little bit more of a picture to Hera. Now, as far as where this fits in the storyline, my feeling is, is we're getting kind of back to what we were getting some of the episodes in season one, where they all kind of fit together. And I got a feeling we're going to see the B-Wing make a return appearance. We're going to see possibly the Mon Calamari who designed it. And we may even see this planet that they're trying to assist these people who they're trying to bring food to, who the Empire is, they're trying to almost starve them out. So I got a feeling just knowing what I know about Rebels and seeing the way they've done things with season one, I think this is going to be a building episode. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense. I remember last time I was on the show last year, we were talking about at the end of the year how those episodes we thought had nothing to do with anything. They were throwaway episodes, came back to tie in perfectly. And so that very well may be what this is today. So maybe you're right. See, I don't think that it's necessarily an episode. It's not like a, an idiot's array, right? It's not an episode that's going to need to have that connection later because it doesn't have the relevance now. In this case, I mean, it's a bridge episode. In a sense, this is for Hera kind of what, you know, Path of the Jedi was for Ezra. For Ezra, it was him finding his path and deciding, yes, he's going to become a Jedi and getting sort of Yoda's nod of approval. And here it's Hera making that transition between, you know, she's just a freighter pilot who's sort of roped herself into this broader rebellion early on. And then even more so once the ghost crew themselves got involved in it. But now here she is and she's actually going to wind up being the squadron leader, Phoenix leader which gives her that next big step in development. It gives us the instance of that being Kanan's idea, which has development for him as far as being more okay with being part of the Rebellion. It feels like it's very much a, I don't want to say it's a building episode and that it doesn't really have its own strength, but it feels like more of a crucial linchpin than a lot of the other ones that we thought of as filler that would then wind up coming back. But I gotta say, Hera gets some time in the sun here. But I'm not sure that I would say that the people out there who are touting this as it's finally got background for Hera, woo, really have gotten what they're saying that they got. I mean, we know a little bit about her background, but we know precious little, relatively speaking. We know that she she's 25 right now at this point. Um, she was born 29 years before A New Hope. We know that she was seven years old when the Clone Wars began, and that's when she's talking about in this episode about, you know, her mom apparently hiding her while Chom, who we already know and didn't know what was going on with the mom, we did know with Chom, so maybe that's why they didn't mention him. He's out there doing the fighting. She's 10 years old when the Clone Wars end, and we don't really hear anything from her then, except then five years later, here we are in uh, Lords of the Sith. And Chom keeps talking about this daughter that he doesn't get to see. And, you know, you got to live for your daughter, etc., etc. And then between Lords of the Sith and Tarkin, we find her in the short story Mercy Mission. 
in the new Rise of the Empire book, which is kind of a throwaway story in many ways, but we see her already flying with some of the survivors from that book. So we got this question sort of of, okay, well, at what point does she leave the family and decide to start flying for herself? Is this her talking about her taking off into that Story Mercy mission, or somewhere between age 10 and 15 does she do that? We still know precious, precious little about the character. This gave some characterization to her and gave some hints as to her background, but I don't think those that are arguing this was a Hera's background kind of episode are really on the mark with that one. I gotta agree on that. And I don't think that this is the end-all, be-all of the Hera backstory, but it gives you some teasers. I mean, I don't think that this is any less of a backstory than what we got way back in the beginning of season one for Zeb's backstory. Absolutely. Droids in Distress was for him, what this episode is for her, and that's so far about it. So let's get into the episode itself. It kicks off with the Rebels and the rest of the Alliance, this whole group, going toward this planet to bring them food. And they have to run this Imperial blockade that is commanded by Agent Callus. And, well, I guess he got kicked off his Star Destroyer, huh? It was so funny because while I was watching the episode and Callus showed up, I'm like, God, it's Callus again? And then Zeb says something to the effect of, Oh, what do you know? It's Callus again. And I'm like, that's so funny, Zab. That's what I just said. <laughs> Is this guy like maybe he has clones everywhere? I don't know. <laughs> that's a great Zeb impression, by the way. Thank you. I like Callus showing up. I'm getting used to those pork chop sideburns of his. And is it just me or did Callus get an upgrade? Because I don't remember him having that many freckles before. I loved his freckles. What great detail that was. Really great stuff. Well, that was from, you know, when the Star Destroyer abandoned him on the planet where I guess Wolf and Gregor still are. He was in the sun, you know, <laughs> with the two AT-AT drivers. But no, seriously, like the last time we saw him, he was with Constantine on that Star Destroyer. Now he's in charge of these three much smaller cruisers. So do you think this is a demotion? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a demotion. I mean... He is still very chippy with his shoulder. He has, he's still very confident in himself and the way that we expect Imperial officers to behave. But he's been handed a few defeats now, you know, and you could say it's his fault or it's not his fault, but he's in command. And I'm sure it's a downgrade, you know, come on, a blockade of a planet. I mean, I, I'm not sure who these refugees are or whatever they are in these plant. Uh, why they're so important that the rebels have to go through this blockade to help them out. They kind of just explain it as, you know, they're helping out people in need. But hopefully, like you said, Jonathan, we find some reason for them to be risking all of these ships and going against Callus. Maybe this is definitely a punishment for Callus. I, I think so. I said earlier that the whole thing is a lot of contrivances in the plot. And here's number one. We don't get an explanation on not only why Callus is there leading these smaller ships blockading this planet, we don't really get an explanation on why our team of rebels are going through all of this to get this food down to these folks on the planet. Frankly, if they do get through the blockade, what's to stop the Empire from, you know, once the rebels leave and dropping off the food, from going down there and strafing the planet and killing all those people? I mean, honestly, we get no explanation about any of this at all or the importance of it at all. It all is just trying to set us up for Hera and the B-Wing later. So this is exactly what I'm talking about on a whole bunch of questions are brought up and none of them are answered. I had a very different impression, I guess, of this. To me, I mean, given that the first time that we see Callus is actually not in the series, it's in Rebellion Begins, where he is so, supposed to be hunting down rebels and he winds up basically manipulating the captain of the Lawbringer to make himself essentially the de facto captain of the Lawbringer instead. And then we see him using the Star Destroyer throughout the series, but even though most of his activities have been on Lothal, my impression was that it wasn't so much that he was leading the Imperial forces on Lothal so much as that just happens to be where the rebel activity was, so that's where he as an ISB agent was active. So to see him away from Lothal, that in and of itself doesn't bother me. And I just think about this, I think about this, I think about the previous episodes where we've had shipments of stuff that had to get somewhere to save some lives, like the generators for the heat back in the previous episode. And there's a part of me that wonders if these are situations Callus is manufacturing as traps for the rebels, playing on their bleeding hearts, because they already know that the rebels, even with the threat of reprisals afterwards, will step in and help people because that's exactly what happened to Tarkin Town before the Empire wiped it out to help drive them off of Lothal in the first place. 
But I'm going to have to agree with Brock. That's a contrivance. I mean, the fact that, okay, well, we're going to make these people suffer just for the hell of it to try to draw them in. I mean, that's awfully convenient. That's Imperials. That's callous. That's a callous callous, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I do have to say that the first attempt that the rebels make to break this blockade, I mean, they get their butts handed to them, don't they? They lose one of their capital ships. And they're what, running with two or three blockade runners that can't run a blockade. Well, you know what the problem was? Problem was, if you look at all the pilots, Phoenix Leader and all the other pilots, the ones that are not named characters, they're basically dressed the same way as all the bridge officers for the Empire. They have their visors and stuff down so far under their eyes. Somehow I doubt they could see well enough to actually fight. That must be what it is. That must be what it is. No, I will say, though, I find it interesting. I mean, at what point did this faction of the rebels... Get to the point where, I mean, just to go back to what Brock was asking about, what makes these people so special? The argument could be, well, they need help. The rebels are going to help if they can. It's not about being special. But you got to sit back and say, why are they willing to risk so many capital ships on this? Because they've already lost some in the, the attempt. And there's even a point at which Hera says, if I take our two remaining blockade runners and try this again, I'm sure I can get at least one through. I'm thinking, how many of these ships must they have? I know that they're calling the blockade runners now Alderanian cruisers, which kind of makes me wonder if just Bail Organa has almost an infinite supply of these things that he can use. Maybe it's the same place they're going to have the B-Wings made or something. But it does seem like this group either has more resources than it seemed back at Siege of Lothal, or they're more desperate and willing to risk a lot more to help these people as opposed to striking directly at the Empire. And I loved that scene because you're absolutely right. The other people in the room were pretty much ready to let her go to do that because these people needed the food so badly until Rex spoke up. They were actually, I mean, I got the impression people were going to consider Hera's ludicrous idea of, oh, I can probably get one through. (laughs) Well, you know, Rex, Rex lived a war of attrition because he was just a throwaway clone. He's not playing that crap again. Rex seems to be the only one who has a level head on him. I mean, he's been through a lot of wars and he just seems like, you know, after you've been through war, it's not so fun anymore. You know, and you try to avoid it as much as possible and you try not to do stupid things, you know, and it seems like Rex has instead of going crazy, I thought Rex would be kind of loony. He's really sensible there. And he's got quite the little network, doesn't he? He's been on this desert planet forever. How the heck does he know this Mon Cal who's building starships? Facebook. Uh, Spacebook, perhaps. Spacebook. There we go. (laughs) Anyway, so he informs the group that he knows this Mon Cal who's building this blockade buster starship. And it sounds too good to be true. And then Kanan kind of volunteers Hera to go. I thought that that was interesting. Again, I think it's another one of those very convenient happenstance. But, you know, so off they go to get it. But it does seem a little out of character to me. By Kanan or out of character for Kanan to send Hera? Because he usually doesn't make decisions like that? Yeah. Hmm. Well, it's like he's willing to sacrifice her. He doesn't even ask her opinion. (laughs) He's just like, he's like, yeah, she'll go. Isn't that right, honey? (laughs) Let me ask, though, I mean... This is something that has come up in the lead up to the episode, and I think we actually talked about it briefly, although I think it was after actually recording the episode last week. I know that at least some of us have got a familiarity with the old uh, RPG from West End Games, but how cool is it that the planet they're going to is Shantipole? It's called Project Shantipole, and it's a Mon Calamari who's in charge of it. It's not the same circumstances we saw back in Strike Force Shantipole, but... I mean, the EU, the Legends continuity, built the idea around that Project Shantipole made the B-Wings for the Rebels. There were Mon Calamari involved in the designs and such. I mean, I would almost expect that with this being called a Blade Wing, that it was even an intentional reference to Dagger Squadron that uses it supposedly for the first time in the Legends continuity. It felt like this had a lot of great references that were just saying, you know what, we love West End games too. You know, the only thing that would have made it better for me is if they had had a Verpine. Ooh, bugs. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've played that game. I've played that supplement, that module way back when. And yeah, I thought that that was a great nod to it. But in the old West End games, it was actually Akbar 
who was responsible for the development of the B-Wing. And you know what? He still could be involved, to be honest, because the one thing about this B-Wing that we see, it's, it is not the same version that we see at the Battle of Endor. It's definitely an earlier prototype. But it's close enough to what we see and recognize what it is. And it seemed to have a lot of these features. I didn't know the guns can do that, for example. I remember the Mon Cal's had a hand in the B-Wing, but I've completely forgot about the Chantepol connection. So uh, I, I kind of liked, I was getting what Nathan was getting, just with much less detail. <laughs> I was enjoying the connections to what was previously given to us, but I didn't realize how deep it actually went. It's funny that you guys mention Akbar because I never played those games, and I don't have that past information about Akbar being involved with the B-Wing. But the first thing that came to my head is, why wasn't it Akbar? We've already seen Akbar in the Clone Wars, where he was helping Ahsoka, right? The Water War arc with Prince right. Lichar. Yeah, with the Prince. I just watched so, that the other day, sadly. Yeah, where you're doing your chronological marathon on your lead up to The Force Awakens. That's a whole other madness. But <laughs> it would have been nice to see Akbar because we've already seen him in the Clone Wars. They've already shown that they have no problem bringing back characters. And it would have been cool that Akbar was involved. But I'll tell you what was cool. If this isn't the B-Wing that we saw at the Battle of Endor, this, you know, I never really liked the B-Wing. Not really knew why it was called the B-Wing. I consider myself a real big Star Wars fan, but these things were just kind of over my head or I never really had the interest to find out why. You know, X-Wing looks like an X-Wing, a Y looks like a Y-Wing. B-Wing is the Blade Wing. And how cool did Rebels make the B-Wing look? I didn't know it was called the Blade Wing either. I never, I didn't even question, oh, it's called the B-Wing. I mean, I understood why the A-Wing was called the A-Wing. It looks like an A. But I just assumed it was called the B-Wing because, you know, it was the other one was the A-Wing. I had no idea it actually had a reason to be called the B-Wing. If I'm not mistaken, I think this is something that Rebels brings. I don't think I've ever heard the B-Wing referred to as a blade wing before. And as I said, I'm, I'm a bit of the Star Wars ships have always been one of my big interests. And that's completely new. They did have one thing somewhat close to it, just as the Legends continuity had Dagger Squadron back in, I think it was the Rebellion comics, in actually the very first canonical prose fiction story that was released for this new story group canon was a pair of insider short stories called Blade Squadron that take place during the Battle of Endor with a B-Wing squadron. So they've kind of been laying the hints there. I like the fact, I mean, this design, I actually think it's a lot cooler than what we see in Return of the Jedi, but they say that in the databank entry that it wasn't something that was put into massive production because of the cost of maintaining this type of thing. But I love the idea of having, you know, you've got your character on the one end, actually in the gyroscopic part, you got another character down actually in what's basically like the gunwell of the thing, and then you've got the lasers that come together and fire. Now, I spent years as a kid trying to figure out why in the hell they call it a B-Wing. I think we're all in agreement on that one. But am I the only one that when playing with this, no matter what we had actually seen on film, didn't you actually at some point think, you know what, I think the blast from this thing should come together like a cone and make a new blast, kind of like a mini Death Star? I know I was playing with it that way. You know what? No, honestly not. I think that one's on you, Nathan. Agreed. I never did that myself. Really? I thought that was no. like the no-brainer of just, you know, bring the lasers together. It's got the little points. It's so symmetrical. Well, I actually had my wings of my B-Wing always shot off because they were easier to remove. <laughs> that's so that's how I always played. Yeah. So why don't we talk about Quarry? Named after? Ralph McQuarrie. Ralph McQuarrie. Okay. So we have the Moncal Quarry, and he's kind of batty, but I kind of liked him. I think this is the first time we've seen a Moncal in Rebels, if I'm not mistaken. And wow, he was short. I just, I didn't expect <laughs> to see him, you know, them look like that and be on a planet without any water. I thought of Peter Pan and Jake and the Neverland Pirates. You guys can tell what I'm watching on my off time. And uh, it turns out it's Corey Burton at the voice, who's the voice of Captain Hook on that show. Wow. Wait, so Quarry was Dooku? Yeah, Quarry's voice was Dooku. Wow, that's some range. Agreed. I absolutely agree. The man is an incredible voiceover actor, and you would never know unless I looked it up. 
you know, he felt to me, I, I think he's another reason why this episode feels like Hera's version of Path of the Jedi, because I never really got the sense, or at least maybe it's just because his mannerisms are so kind of uh, nice neighborly old man who just happens to be grumpy at times or disagreeable at times. I never really got the sense that he was saying, you know what, lady, screw you, you're not taking my ship. This whole thing felt like it was a test. Right up until the point where he finally finds out from her, her view on flying. Because when he's asking her, he's asking like, oh, you wanted to fly in combat, eh? And he's asking her these questions that sort of draw that line between is she a soldier who happens to fly or she is a pilot who happens to now have to be a soldier. Uh, nothing about his disagreeable nature ever felt to me like it was actually anger or being gruff. It really felt more like he was just saying, I want to make sure you are the right pilot. Even when he turns away and says, you know, I've waited for a while, I can wait a little bit longer. Even that sort of feels like it was designed as a test to see how much she's willing to really put into trying to get to fly the ship. I agree with you, Nathan. I think it was exactly a test, but the way she passed the test, it kind of seemed easy to me. I thought he was going to make her go through the ringer a little bit. It was just that one speech, which was basically the backstory we get on Hera and the whole show. But I thought that she passed that test quite easily. But do you think that the test was, I kind of felt like it was almost like a two-part test. Like, that was like the entrance exam. Okay, you get to try it out and be my test pilot, because I've never flown the freaking thing. I'm not that crazy. And it's the actual flying that gets her to actually take it with her, you think? Possibly. But, you know, that brings up an interesting point. He's never flown it. He's never even tried it. I got the impression the thing has never flown, period, before Hera takes off with it. That must be some really good computer modeling to figure that out because I don't think I'd want to be flying off that cliff in, in a ship that's never gone anywhere. Wait a minute. I also got confused on since when the ghost came on the planet, the electric systems went haywire and they had to fly it without any sort of, well, controls. How is it that the B-Wing can fly in the same atmosphere without having any of the same problems electrically. Yeah, figure it's somehow a... shielded from it, right? I mean, just like you would take something and, and insulate it from electric shocks if you were trying to make something that's supposed to work in a storm versus work in the desert, perhaps? And they kind of allude to that, basically saying, well, if, if it'll fly here, it'll fly anywhere. No, I understand that. But maybe perhaps it was coming in from the atmosphere out from a space is the issue as opposed to being actually in atmosphere. Maybe that's as simple as that. I don't think we're supposed to think about it, actually. No, I, I understand that. But I, my whole premise, my whole take on this entire episode is that they keep setting things up that don't have any explanation and they want me to go with it. The entire thing, this entire episode is they're asking me to go with it. And while I am absolutely always fine with it, and there's certainly wonderful things in this episode we haven't even got a chance to talk about yet, every plot point that is brought up, they're just asking me to go with it and at a certain point, Jonathan, I just think, okay, wait a second. Why? And maybe it's because I watched the episode a couple of times and, and it's kind of sticking out with me now. But I just, I don't understand why not one thing is given explanation and then gone with. And then they expect me just to go with every single thing. I don't want to be overly negative. I'm just saying that it just seems like there's a whole bunch of stuff they want us to go with. I kind of agree with you. I think, again, I'm speaking from the point where I'm remembering season one, where we asked a lot of those questions about certain segments of certain episodes, but eventually we got some answers. So maybe I'm just hoping that we'll get some answers at some point. But while I am able to identify everything that you're questioning, Brock, and I agree with you that they don't give us a reason, for some odd reason, I'm able to let go and just enjoy the episode, which is very atypical for me. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah, they gave us a couple answers earlier in this series. Last week it was, well, that could make sense. And last season it was, be not concerned with how. But Brock, I think, so basically the episode is putting you in the position of Padme in The Phantom Menace. I'm sure you'll finish the race. When he's never finished one before, Padme's just supposed to take it. The queen trusts my judgment. Ugh! Basically, Qui-Gon is rebels. You are Padme. At least until she reveals that she's really the queen and starts telling everybody what to do. Well, I got something to tell you guys. I'm actually the president of the United States. I thought, Nathan, you were calling Brock a queen, which, you know, that's a different episode entirely. Yeah, I'm not going to come out on Rebels Roundtable. I might do that on Star Wars Action News, but not Rebels Roundtable. I was tell gonna... me, Brock, how many yes. times have you changed clothes during this episode? I'm not an Oscar host. I only <laughs> basically, Jonathan, if a show is good enough that I don't question these sorts of things, 
I applaud it. Turning off my brain is difficult sometimes for me. But what I'm saying here is that the shows, there was just too many of these things for my brain to turn off completely. I'm always a fan of just going with it. But when I find that I can't go along with it, then I, I, I start going overboard on the questioning. So I, I admit that's my own flaw. But that's also a flaw of the show that there has to be more substance here. Otherwise, I'm going to start nitpicking it apart. Barrett, what about you? Were you able to let go or did these inconsistencies bother you? See, I'm the king of inconsistencies, so it, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me. We're used to getting these kind of episodes that don't really put the plot along, and they are the character episodes, and you mentioned a couple of those earlier, and that's the way kind of how this show is. And I'm pretty confident, like Jonathan, that we are going to find out why they risk so many ships, why these people are so important. Why a few trunks of meat or whatever they're giving to these people or feeding the whole planet or however many people are on there. It can't be just this one-time deal and let it go. So I feel confident that we will get the answers. I enjoyed the episode. I mean, it's not Shakespeare. And Hera had to share a lot of the spotlight with the B-Wing. And this Mon Calamari. I, I mean, I think we got a good, solid episode. I mean, come on, man. If you... I think Brock, or maybe I'm getting you mixed up with Jerry, but I, th I think you said you liked Ant-Man. I'm like, come on, man. If you liked Ant-Man, you got to get with this. I haven't seen Ant-Man. Dude, what's wrong no, with Ant-Man? I, I like Ant-Man. <laughs> Ant-Man Roundtable. I did like the B-Wing flying through the planet. <laughs> I thought it was really kind of fun, to, the sweeping camera movements. The, it was beautiful, those birds next to the ship. I liked when Hera was testing out the guns. That sequence was wonderful. It really was. I love the camera angles when they go up from below. And then also, what we didn't talk about it earlier, during the first battle, you had the point of view shots of the gunners. The camera work is really fantastic in all these scenes. So while I was disappointed with the plot, I was very much interested in the animation and the flow and the direction and the action sequences. All that stuff was top notch in the episode. And I was able to enjoy those aspects very much. Brock, I'm glad you brought that up because that is something that really stuck out to me this episode. I don't know what it is, but this episode, the way they shot it or the way they animated it, it looks so much more cinematic. I think in the first episode, when you're looking over Kanan's shoulder as he's, you know, in the turret trying to track the TIE fighters. It was beautiful. And there were later shots where it looked head and shoulders above what we've seen previously on the show. The ships would fly towards the camera when they're going towards the blockade. When the first blockade run failed and the ship was blowing up, they didn't linger too much on it. And then you saw Hera's face being all worried, disappointed, and you could see the weight on her shoulders. But they quickly cut away to this and that. It was just the direction and the selection of shots in this episode were just remarkable. So I agree. I'm really happy that they took the time to do that, especially with this kind of episode when the plot was lacking for me. It was nice that I was able to enjoy something that might be there all the time, but I'm not noticing it because I'm concentrating so much on the plot or the action sequences or the characterizations. Well, you know, you bring up a good point, Brock. And I think if I can take your comment a little bit further, for me, this episode, I stopped thinking about does this feel like Star Wars? I mean, I don't think that's a question that comes up in my mind anymore when I'm watching this. And I think that in itself is a victory. And maybe that's why I'm able to give all of these MacGuffins and kind of go with it, because I'm not questioning if this feels like Star Wars anymore, because when they're doing their space battles, it's a Star Wars space battle. It's not a Star Trek space battle. It's a Star Wars space battle, and it feels like that. So maybe that's why I'm a little bit more easier on this. Is this starting to feel like Star Wars? Are you still questioning that? Well, I never question. I think this feels like Star Wars from the get-go with the music and the character designs and all that. I was never in that camp, but I'm really glad you brought up Star Trek because some of the music in the latter part of the episode, I was questioning the music choices. It didn't sound like Star Wars music to me at all. I have that note that this music sounds like, and then it gets to exactly where it was, Star Trek. There were some Star Trek cues in there from the Star Trek movies, especially when they're dropping the cargo off on the planet at the end. I couldn't believe it. I was like, my God, this sounds like Star Trek 3. I'm glad I'm not the only one who heard it. I thought maybe I was reaching, but there were a couple of times where I was listening to the score and just expecting to just hear the rest of the, you know, the next couple of bars from one of the pieces from a Star Trek movie. 
See, I've spent quite a while away from Trek with the exception of the newer stuff, the J.J. Abrams stuff. And I was going to say the exact opposite. I felt like this episode finally did something with the music that we've been sort of waiting for this series to do in its own right for a while in that it wasn't just reusing Star Wars themes. Most of the time when I heard something that sounded like a familiar Star Wars theme, it was barely that theme and then moved on into something else that gave it its own identity. Like for the first time, I felt like there's a point when... I think it's when they're loading the cargo onto the ghost for that second run when they don't know if Hera's going to be back. And there's music that plays. And for the first time, I thought, wow, is that Hera's theme? Is that the ghost's theme? As opposed to thinking, oh, well, that's just reused Star Wars music, repurposed or tweaked for something else. It actually felt like it's starting to get its own musical identity. And I'm with Brock. I think this thing has felt like Star Wars from the get-go. Although I would hope that in most Star Wars, when you're going into a firefight, you don't get into the turret after the fight has already started, if you know the fight is coming, because twice that happens in this episode. I'm all for them having new music instead of rehashing stuff, although I do enjoy the musical cues that are familiar. But the music has to sound like Star Wars. It reminded me a little bit of Shadows of the Empire. You remember that soundtrack of Shadows of the Empire where oh, it yeah. tried to be Star Wars, but it wasn't really quite there. It's funny you say that because that is also one of the criticisms that's being laid on the Battlefront video game that came out. Actually, today as we're recording this, the audio mix is superb and every once in a while they'll use some of their own version of Star Wars music, some newly composed stuff. And people are saying, wait, that's not Star Wars. We're, we're so programmed for this. So what did you guys think of the culmination, that final battle here, when Hera catches up with the rebel fleet or the rebel strike force, whatever you want to call it, and really kind of pulls their chestnuts out of the fire by using the B-wing or the blade wing to actually take out one of those light cruisers? I love the battle. I love when Hera came in. I thought that was a really great Star Wars moment. We've seen that a few times, and I love that every time it happens. It's the I'm with you, too. It's the woohoo! It's, that's that great moment. And it worked completely. I loved Callus's face. And what we we brought it up earlier a little bit. This guy should be dead. I mean, he's failed so many times that Vader should kill him. There's no, I mean, not, not that I wish the ill on anybody. But honestly, this guy keeps failing. And in the Empire, you can't fail that much and still live. He's going to become the next Grievous pretty much at this point. I would agree. I love the way that this played out. She swoops in, saves the day, but everything that's done with it still feels true to Star Wars. It still feels realistic in the scenario. The other group is still trying to push through, even against the insurmountable odds and so on. Nothing felt contrived, despite the fact that it's basically a let's go into God mode, as in the video game sense, and send in the one ultimate weapon. The only thing that left me shaking my head afterwards was why doesn't she take that same weapon and wheel back around and blow up the other two rather than letting Callus live. But I think we've left a piece off of this if we're talking about how great it was that the Blade Wing saved the day. Because we've been focusing on the B-Wing this entire time. Keep in mind, this is the episode, thanks to BG-81, named after Bill George, who back in 81 helped design the B-Wing, thanks to that astromech, the Phantom is no longer the same ship we saw before. The Phantom has been upgraded to now include a hyperdrive and an astromech socket to be able to do so. So now they have the ability to connect that. So it's actually kind of like the Blade Wing and the Phantom together taking part in saving the day, which kind of gives the Phantom more personality in this whole thing, too. All those little technical pieces coming together to give us this kind of bombastic conclusion to what was otherwise kind of a mostly serene kind of episode. No, wait a minute. I caught the fact that they upgraded the Phantom and that they put in the uh, hyperdrive. You're saying that there's an astromech port? There is. I did not notice it until I took a look at all of the uh, behind-the-scenes images and stuff like that that they put up on the episode guide on StarWars.com, but it needs an astromech to be able to use its hyperdrive. So I'm assuming that's where BG-81 went. Oh, okay. Because I like BG-81. I don't know, just the look of him. The look of him, the color scheme and setup is actually designed around the shirt worn by Bill George in an old production photo when he was working on the B-Wing. They have dug into the archives and just crafted so much around this episode for those who are either paying attention or reading the episode guide. In that case, in my case, uh, reading the episode guide. Yeah, I was going to wonder, like, man, yeah, I know you know a lot, but if you pulled that out by the first time you're watching, I'm like, I mean, I already have Nerd. respect for your knowledge. I have so much respect for your Star Wars knowledge, Nathan. It's not even funny. But even there, I'd be like, holy cow <laughs> that's when oh you call like bs on me so nope i call shenanigans he looked it up 
I'm like, Nathan, well, thank, oh, I'm glad you copped us looking it up because if you didn't, you'd be scaring the crap out of us. <laughs> Nathan is the only guy that can give me the same feeling that I must give the normies when I talk about Star Wars. <laughs> well, okay, so now we have the Phantom that's upgraded, and I guess I would assume that his astromech went with Quarry, so now they've got a new place to stuff Chopper. Yeah, speaking of Chopper, he's kind of MIA this episode. I guess you can't have two cool droids in the episode. He could have, you know, helped run the hyperspace. But, you know, give me a two-pack of Quarry and the BG-81, and I'd be a happy camper. Well, we already know that you can't have two droids in the same episode because Chopper will kill it. Well, didn't we have an episode with Chopper and R2? We did. Yeah, Yeah, where they're banging against each other. But there was also that one with the uh, Imperial droid that Chopper didn't like, and he pushed him out the uh, cargo bay doors. (laughs) I mean, Chopper has some really unresolved anger issues that I think he's going to need. Does not play with others. No, not at all. Did the new droid have a transparent hood, or was that just dreaming? He did. No, he, he had did. a transparent dome. It was a goldish right. color. Yeah, that would have been, if you're using the old Legends continuity, it would have been an R3 droid. A gold dome for gold leader of gold square. Oh, I'm sorry. Wrong show. Freaking snips. <laughs> now, can we say, I, I gotta think about the end of this episode. They're returning back to the fleet, and the fleet apparently has a, we can sort of tell, I guess, what the capital ship is, or not the capital ship, the uh, command ship is because of the different paint job, I guess, that's on it. So they must have replaced Phoenix home at some point with this just repainted blockade runner and all. But it's interesting, they get back, they talk about what's going on, we find out that they've already been in contact with Bail Organa, who has some type of friendly shipyards who is going to be able to mass produce this vessel uh, from this B6 prototype, is what it says on the side, apparently, in Orabesh which theoretically means that, you know, it's going to go through some more revisions under Quarry before it becomes the B-Wing that we know, which explains the differences and all. So we've got that already set up. And then, speaking of setups, bad segue, we have Hera becoming Phoenix leader because of her piloting skills. But it's when Sato, what got me was when Sato says, you know, I'm taking Kanan's advice or taking Kanan's suggestion. And it struck me, is it possible that this wasn't Kanan just being like, she'll do it. She'll do, you know, give it to Mikey. Mikey will eat anything. She'll do the mission. And then just later saying, wow, look at what she did. She should be Phoenix leader. Or is this something where you think that Kanan was already talking to Sato ahead of time and kind of nudging her into this mission was a way of trying to get her to prove herself so that she could get that position that he had already kind of recommended her for? Well, they make a big point of, well, Kanan does, that Hera's the best pilot. And Sato is like, well, the rest of the squadron will learn from your good example and your skills. So I think this is something, you know, also based on the the looks that Sato and Kanan traded, that you could tell that they've discussed this before. But my question is, okay, if Hera's the leader, what does that mean? Exactly. Is she going to take on fighter duties or is she going to just lead in the ghost just like Calrissian did in the Falcon for the Battle of Endor? I mean, what does that mean exactly? I thought that means she's the head like because Phoenix leader died earlier in the episode. Right. So there was a vacancy. I'm thinking that when you have rogue leader or red leader or goal or all those other ones in the in the show. That, that means they're in this fighter squadron with them. So I would think next time she's leading Phoenix Squadron, she's going to be in a whatever vehicle, maybe a B-Wing, maybe an A-Wing, whatever else they're flying. I'm hoping that it's going to be in the Ghost or in the Blade Wing fighter, that we're going to see her either in, well, in one of her two elements, that they're not going to try to shoehorn her in and say, okay, well, all of a sudden she becomes an A-Wing pilot because then that leaves the Ghost without her, which makes her integral to that family, unless this is sort of the mama goes off to work series of episodes type of thing. But she certainly has the potential to wind up being this character playing multiple roles that we really haven't seen with many of the members of the crew. They kind of have their little pigeonhole area, and that's kind of where they're stuck. It would be kind of cool if the blade wing stuck around for a little bit, and it kind of became kind of Hera's blade wing, because we already seen how it could hook up to the Phantom. So it could be around for a while. This could be your ship. You know, it's possible. I think that that prototype does need some work. Obviously, while that cannon is very powerful, 
we do find out that it has a negative effect on other systems in the ship. That's why it lost its hyperdrive. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see because while it is cool that the Phantom can sort of almost tow the B-Wing into battle, that would mean that the Phantom can't be part of the Ghost. And I'm not sure. Well, the Ghost maybe could tow it into battle. I don't know. It'd be odd. And speaking of the ships, there's been this question of, okay, well, there's A-Wings all over this squadron. Where the heck are the Y-Wings? Heck, the Y-Wings were in Clone Wars. Where are the Y-Wings? Where are the X-Wings? Because those are what we see in A New Hope. And isn't this leading to A New Hope? They actually finally gave an answer to that. And I think it was actually kind of a cool answer. It puts things in a new perspective relative to A New Hope in Rebels Recon. What they basically said was that, remember, as of A New Hope, they've won their first victory against the Galactic Empire. This is their first major victory. So the Rebel Alliance in and of itself as an organization is relatively new. Otherwise, it's these little small rebel groups. And the way that Filoni puts it, or Hidalgo puts it, I forget which one it was. I think it was Pablo, actually, is that, well, you see, in A New Hope, that's Dodonna's rebel group. And that rebel group, based on their resources, based on their skill set, they use Y-Wings and X-Wings. Well, this is Sato's group over here. And Sato's group based on their skill sets, just uses A-Wings, and now with access to the B-Wing, they could even start using the B-Wings. So it's not that A-Wings or B-Wings didn't exist as of A New Hope, which was actually something that the Legends continuity ran with to give all kinds of convoluted ways for them to, you know, kind of exist in droids, yet not really. Those were early versions and all of that. To just say, look, they're all active. They're from these different rebel groups, and it's only when we get to the fleet massing at Solist for Return of the Jedi... When all the different rebel groups as part of the alliance, they're more like a confederacy than they are a federal system, would then bring it together. And that's why you've got your X-Wings and your Y-Wings fighting alongside your B-Wings and your A-Wings and such in that battle. Because the disparate groups that had their different preferences for technology have finally brought it all together. I found that to be a very elegant, very simple, but very believable reason for why you would have the different groups of starfighters with the different rebel groups. It it wasn't something that ever occurred to me. We're trained by legends to think, well, they just must not have existed yet, but not so much. I agree with you completely. And after I watched that recon, I'm like, yeah, I really like that. And it's a retcon in a way, but technically speaking, it's not, right? <laughs> it's, they don't have anything to have to go back to. I, I really like it. I think it makes complete sense. And I'm looking forward to finding that excuse as they put the pieces of the Rebel Alliance together. I love that last season, at the end of last year, when they had Ahsoka's contingent come together with this one, and they mentioned becoming a Rebel Alliance, or at least hinted towards it. I can't remember the exact dialogue. Well, here's further proof if that's exactly what they're doing here with this show is the beginnings of the rebel alliance it goes right into the whole what they're doing here with this show and i think this goes back to what i've said about this episode at the beginning i think this is a building block episode that they're going to build on and i like you guys really feel that that was a good way to explain how there can be both a wings b wings and x wings and y wings in any case i am eager to see where they go with this and where they go with some of the things introduced here. And I, as I've said, I don't think we've seen the last of the B-Wing or the Blade Wing. In any case, I want to thank you guys for joining me to discuss this episode. Nathan, Barrett, always fun. And Brock, I was glad you could join us this evening. Thank you all for having me again. I hope it didn't come off too much like a negative Nelly and pointing out these things that maybe you guys don't always do, but I'm glad to be accepted by your group. And I hope one day soon I can come back and not crap all over another episode. <laughs> we hey, we like dark side brock i mean you know you like darth revan you know you go to the dark side you come back i like good stories i like well-written stuff i'm sorry i mean I, if you hear any of my book reviews at sw action news i always complain about it or if you've listened to anything i've done on now playing i always say it always comes down to the script i found the script here pretty convenient and pretty bland and i hope you guys are right i hope what they're doing here is laying groundwork they proved us wrong last year with this very sort of thing, I hope that I'm wrong, and this is going to all lead up to something great in future episodes this season. I'm with you, Brock. I hope that this becomes the foundation for something greater, and the way they've been pushing things through Rebels so far, uh, I think we've got a pretty good chance that's the case. And if nothing else, at least this is an episode that shows that they can do Season 2 without Clone Wars 2.0. But so far, that's been the best shows. So, you know, I'm glad overall this episode had its moments and it also had, you know, its plot holes or whatever, but I was pretty satisfied with it. 
since I don't have cable, I haven't seen any previews of what's coming up next. So I'm kind of sportly free. But now they've kind of, again, cleared the slate for kind of whatever they want to do. Hopefully we get some Vader stuff. Maybe we'll get that Mandalorian stuff. But this is a palate cleansing episode. I'm ready for the next course. Well, you know, next up, Mandalorian. It's Sabine's background episode next. And of course, we'll be back to talk about it. But until next time, long live the rebellion. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable. Rebels Roundtable is hosted by Jonathan, Barrent, Jen, Nathan, Mark, and Dan. Interact with us online at facebook.com slash rebelsroundtable or on Twitter at rebelsround. Also, be sure to visit rebelsroundtable.com when looking for an episode directory of the show. The Rebels Roundtable team is proud to carry on the legacy of Venganza Media's Republic Forces Radio Network podcast. We invite you to visit republicforces.com's archive section to hear many of the team members' thoughts on the Clone Wars, droids, Ewoks, and the Clone Wars micro-series. And check out Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com, which you can find among the second Airborne Division podcast network at StarWarsReport.com. Star Wars Rebels and all that the Star Wars universe contains is the intellectual property of the Walt Disney Company, and no infringement is intended. Star Wars Report's Rebels Roundtable is copyright 2014, all rights reserved. We're so programmed for this. Keep going, that was an interjection. I said my piece, man. Oh. oh. I, I mean, I, I, I kind of actually banked on you interrupting me. <laughs> oh, son of a bitch. We all know Brock. each other too well. Uh, it's my first time on the show, as, man. I mean, I've, I've recorded Chopper said, 10 years now. As Chopper said... Dirty mother. <laughs> I'm so glad you're editing this and not me. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey, I can just slap that on the end. It's blooper gold. People love that stuff. When Hera catches up with the rebel fleet or the rebel strike force, whatever you want to call it, and really kind of pulls their chestnuts out of the fire by using the B wing or the blade wing to actually take out one of those light cruisers. I think he meant testicles for everyone listening. What? He I said did. chestnuts out of the fire. You meant testicles. You meant testicles. Oh, okay. Well, fine. <laughs> Jonathan's like, did I mean testicles? You're the psychologist, man. Yeah, well. How did he know I was holding my testicles, Jonathan thought. <laughs> Come on, Baron. it's time for you to pull a... <laughs> and tell us what you think it means. The ghost maybe could tow it into battle. I don't know. It'd be odd. Okay, I take it back. Crash that. <laughs> what? Wow. I think that's our cue. Will you please stop talking? <laughs>